Hi, everyone, and welcome to Ahead of the Curve, a podcast series focused on community and economic development strategies for the COVID economy. I'm Nigel Griswold, co-founder and CEO of Dynamo Metrics, and your host for Ahead of the Curve. In this episode, I'm joined by Michael Schramm, Director of Information Technology and Research at the Cuyahoga Land Bank and Research Associate at the Center on Urban Poverty and Community Development in the Mandel School of Applied Social Sciences at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. At the County Land Bank, Michael is currently developing information tools to help the corporation use data to make strategic acquisition decisions, as well as track property status from acquisition to demolition to disposition. Recognized as a national expert in property data systems, Michael is also extensively involved in the development and maintenance of the neighborhood information system, NeoCanDo, which stands for Northeast Ohio Community and Neighborhood Data for Organizing. Michael's expertise on foreclosure, subprime mortgages, and other real property data has been extensively utilized by the Neighborhood Stabilization Team, sponsored by Neighborhood Progress, Inc., the Cuyahoga County Foreclosure Prevention Program, the City of Cleveland, and Cuyahoga County. He is also active in the local foreclosure and vacant property dialogue through VAPAC, which is the Vacant and Abandoned Property Action Council, and has presented at numerous national meetings and conferences on these topics. Michael has a Bachelor's of Science in Geography and Meteorology from Penn State University and a Master of Arts in Geography from Syracuse University. Our conversation covers the power of integrated data systems, using those data systems to do neighborhood level research that informs policies and programs, and the importance of local and regional partnerships to access key data sets and sustain organizational relationships. And now, my conversation with Michael. Today on Ahead of the Curve, we have, we have Mike Schramm, the Director of IT and Research at the Cuyahoga Land Bank. Mike and I have a deep history of doing work together. I think we're seven or eight years in doing research and different data work together. So I'm really excited to have Mike on the show, um, talk about all things data and the application of data into the COVID economy and just the relevance of data to, to run good governance. And so beyond Director of IT and Research at Cuyahoga Land Bank, Mike does a lot of other things. And so I'm going to pass it over to Mike and let, let you talk about your roles in Cuyahoga County in the Cleveland region, Mike, and uh, all the things you do. Thanks for being on. Hey, thanks for having me, Nigel. Um, just a little story before I break into to a little bit about myself. Um the first time I met Nigel was as a conference in New Orleans. I don't remember the year, but um, Nigel said, hey, you have great data and we're going to be working together one day. And I think we are now on our sixth or seventh, maybe eighth project together in that uh, in that history. So it's been great working with Dynamo Metrics and Nigel and uh, his team. Thanks, Mike. You're welcome. So I have been playing different roles, integrating data in uh, in Cleveland and Cuyahoga County uh, since 2001 around the, the arenas of community development and uh, housing and government. So that's sort of been my area of expertise of basically just finding different data sources at the parcel data set and using a metaphorical glue stick to glue them together. And that's, that's why I'm here talking to you. It's amazing how life takes you to a certain place 
I chose an internship back in 2001, which introduced me to the wonderful world of community development and all its interrelationships with government. So I've been at the um, Cuyahoga Land Bank since 2010. I'm about to celebrate my 10th anniversary here. But I have also been a research associate at the Center on Urban Poverty and Community Development in the um, Mandel School of Applied Social Sciences at Case Western University since 2004. And basically what brought me to the land bank was my work at Case Western Reserve University on the Neo-CanDo project to merge together different parcel data sets. And the land bank, rightfully so, realized how valuable uh, integrated data are to its operations that they basically allowed, uh, well, we, we, we talked, and I have a dual role where I can still work on my data projects at the university, as well as be involved in my responsibilities here at the Cuyahoga Land Bank on a daily basis. So there's a couple things in there that we could uh, we could go a little deeper on to kind of let folks know what they are. So you, you said the Neo Can Do Project. I also obviously want to go deep into that. But then you also said we're talking about the land bank. And so some of our listeners, you know, we're talking community development, economic development, housing, those pieces. So a lot of them are going to understand the concept of land banking. But can you just say like your, what land banking is and then your role within the land banking world, like how you feed information into the land bank machine of Cuyahoga County and what the land bank does? So the uh, Cuyahoga Land Bank um, has been around since 2009, and we are basically the depository of last result for uh, vacant and abandoned and distressed properties. Um, Our land banking legislation was written by our president, Gus Frangos, passed the Ohio General Assembly in 2008. We opened our doors in 2009, and We basically take vacant, distressed property and triage it to determine if it's going to be a demolition candidate, a renovation candidate, be put into the hands of a nonprofit with a track record to do something positive, to be greened, put into a side yard program. Um, And we're basically making these real-time decisions on what to do with vacant and distressed property here in Cleveland and Cuyahoga County. And so that and so there's a lot going on at that property level, a lot of dynamics. And so that's where that's where the data piece comes in, right? That's and so, right. And and so we can circle back there. Um, I mean, informing those decisions with good data is key. And that and that's where the Neo Can Do project comes in, correct? And so maybe maybe some deeper background or just the capacity of the Neo-Can-Do project and how that plays a role? Sure. So the Neo-Can-Do project started at Case Western Reserve University in the early 90s. So the first version was called Can-Do. It actually came out when I believe I was in eighth grade, and it was... um, um, it was more of aggregated data at the census tract and neighborhood level There was a study done on neighborhood poverty in Cleveland back in 1988 
around the formation of the Center on Urban Poverty and Community Development. Mm -hmm. And it was really one of the first um, studies of poverty at the at the small level of analysis of the neighborhood and census tract. Most studies were done, you know, either at a regional level or an MSA level or a citywide level, but the researchers um, doing this study um, looked across many different sources and used the neighborhood as the basic unit of analysis, which in the late 80s was very innovative and what happened was, instead of just it becoming a, a, a report that got put on the shelf that somebody read, oh, we did a great study on poverty in Cleveland, and you know, as soon as you do a study, the data obviously becomes dated because we live in a constantly changing world. Um, you know, very dynamic things are happening. They were happening in the late 80s. They are happening today. And... Um, the center decided to come up with mechanisms and data sharing agreements to update that data on a regular basis. And then um, people were, were, were saying, oh, Poverty Center, you wrote this great report. Um, what about the data that goes behind it? Can we have the data? And so the staff at the time was spending too much time responding to data requests and not enough time doing research that they decided to put the information into the hands of, of the actual end users, the people who could benefit from um, having sort of what's called the neighborhood information system. And Can Do was the first version, which was just the city of Cleveland, just neighborhood level data. And then it eventually expanded to Cuyahoga County. And then the seven or eight counties that's that surround Cuyahoga County. And now it actually has coverage for the 17 counties of Northeast Ohio. Uh, that came about in 2005. And, you know, not all the data is available for all 17 counties of, of Northeast Ohio, but anything that's available from a national or state source are available for all those counties. And then we have more data for Cleveland and Cuyahoga County, um, and the data runs the gamut from the, the property data that we're going to be talking about more in depth here throughout today's conversation. But there's also crime and police reports, information on public assistance programs, um, you know, birth rates, death rates, census data, uh, school uh, attendance and performance data. And it's really to get a complete picture of what's going on in the dynamics of our neighborhood. And so I, I came to, to work on the, 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 the property data aspect of that in 2004, and we rolled out a public property system in 2005 under the NeoCandu brand. And actually that interface is still running to this day from 2005. People like it. It's just very useful for finding out basic property characteristics, sales information, and some very limited information on foreclosure activity. So there's tiered uses of NeoCanDo, right? Like there's there's a when you say NeoCanDo, maybe you can just say the the full acronym real quick one time. 
And the OCANDU stands for the Northeast Ohio Community and Neighborhood Data for Organizing. Yes, Neo can do. And it's the envy of many regions across the country in terms of Right. And and we see we see it as a suite of applications. So, you know, if you think about Google or Microsoft, you know, all the, the branding of Office is Word, Excel, PowerPoint, Access. So in in the in the neo can do um you know world we have this this brand of neo can do which contains our property information that's available to the the public through our property data portal our neighbor, neighborhood strategy technology platform which is the what we call the NST which is the more closed system that is used by all of the governments and community partners here there's the research projects that are coming from the Center on Urban Poverty and Community Development that have that powered by Neo Can Do uh, branding. Then there's the Neighborhood Data Warehouse, which has a lot of those original data on crime and census and uh, American Community Survey, the, the 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 basic core elements of of a neighborhood information system is is in a product we call the Neighborhood Data Warehouse, and then we have an integrated childhood data system. We are an evaluator of our county's Invest in Children program. I have absolutely nothing to do with that side of the office, but we have a very impressive integrated data system that basically tracks children in our county from the time they're born until the time, uh, I think until they're 18, and basically any time they've, they've touched the public assistance programs, the juvenile delinquency programs, the Cleveland Metropolitan School District, all of those administrative data are linked through probabilistic matching to create this huge, rich research product of children and their outcomes related to all these touch points you know, within public information. And that's a major driver of, that makes the Poverty Center at Case Western Reserve a, a powerhouse when it comes to that type of research, a global leader. Is that correct? When it comes to integrated data, yes. We are a best practice out there. And, you know, people are coming to us all the time for research related to children and that integrated child data system. And and in the last five years or so, maybe even longer, we've started to parlay that with our integrated property information system. So we're doing a lot on, on lead and a lot on social determinants of and outcomes of, of children based on their housing conditions and neighborhood conditions. And so if you combine a very powerful integrated property data system with a integrated child data system, you know, there there are, are so many opportunities out there to answer questions that have never been answered before. Yes. This and this is how you and I met. I mean, this regular updates, property level dynamic data is what has always lit my fire and always lit your fire. And that's kind of what brought us together, right? That's like, right. So uh, you know, when we initially started doing research together, my my goals as a, as a young researcher when I met you, or how do we build these data systems, uh, integrate them such that we can build models that tell us, you know, from a policy perspective, we have policy questions as you're talking about, 
When something changes, when you shock a small environment, a micro environment with a program, an investment, an activity, whatever that is at that micro scale, how does that how does that shock the micro environment? How does that change that? Do, you know, are are we increasing property values? Are we are, is crime going up? Is crime going down? How are, you know what are the dynamics at the at the property scale, at the neighborhood scale, as a result of different interventions at the neighborhood scale? So. That interest, you know, I just want to point out, like, that's what brought us together because I saw you doing it. I said, they're doing it. Oh, my gosh, they're doing it in the greater Cleveland area. And, you know, the whole living, breathing, updating dynamicness of data, you know, we are updating our property data every single week. And it's changing every single week. And you can't make decisions in real time if you don't know yeah. The landscape. So talk about direct application on a daily basis. I mean, we, we're going to circle this back to the current crisis, the COVID crisis, uh, federal policy coming down the pike. But I want to I unpack this. Let's talk about the application on a day-to-day basis. I think that is critical. Why does it matter if you're the, the Cuyahoga Land Bank to know what's happening on properties yesterday? Why does real-time, regularly updated data matter compared to annual data? Why does it matter if it's at the property level and you have a historical backlog of it, you have all that integrated information over time, and then you also have it coming into the current event like time series? How does that affect business at the Cuyahoga Land Bank? How do you leverage that? Right. So something that my team here and myself here at the Cuyahoga Land Bank are extensively involved in is you know, we all know that um, there are limited resources out there, whether they be for demolition dollars or, you know, renovation programs. And we need to basically choose the best properties to put through our tax foreclosure pipeline to come out the, at the back end, you know, for the benefit of the county, we need to make decisions on tax foreclosure decisions. And when you say best, you know, you, you want to have optimal impact on that neighborhood environment, right? As well as line for the county. Is that right? That's right. So, so just sort of taking a step back forward, the county government only does so many tax foreclosures in a given year. And I know you have a lot of listeners in Michigan, but uh, tax foreclosure in Ohio works differently. You know, every single Tax foreclosure is its own case. We do have an expedited tax foreclosure system for vacant and abandoned property. And then we have a judicial process for occupied property that's that's tax delinquent. So they'll only do the, you know, county government will only do so many tax foreclosures in a given year because of, you know, budgets and staffing and capacity and things like that. And so is it better to foreclose on you know, oldest and highest, or is it better to foreclose on properties that can be put into a, a beneficial use, whether through, you know, uh, a land bank demolition, a land bank renovation, an economic development project. And we are working with all of the neighborhood-based community development organizations here in Cleveland, the uh, first suburban governments, as well as a lot of social service and faith-based organizations in the neighborhoods. 
as well as a lot of the people who are doing development and economic development projects. And so, so we have this huge list of people that we are working with, plus we have our own programmatic goals out there to do renovations and demolitions. And let's use data to find the best properties to foreclose on through the tax foreclosure process that at the end of the day, either result in someone paying the taxes or the property coming into the land bank's ownership to either go out to one of these partner organizations for redevelopment or be redeveloped ourselves, rehabilitated and or, you know, put into a side yard program or things like that. Let's not foreclose on properties that just end up at the end of the day sitting in um, something that's called state forfeiture, which is just kind of like this limbo where nobody wanted it at, at the end of the tax foreclosure process because the the liens, you know, the the taxes owed were were way too high, or you know, it gets put into a a, a process of of additional flipping and speculating. Let's put it into the the hands of an organization that can actually triage and respond to the community needs and goals. And just a simple example, when you're making requests for tax foreclosure, you know, it's important that the information is updated because somebody could pay off their taxes. Somebody could go on a payment plan. And all of these factors that we go through when we're scrubbing for new tax foreclosure candidates, you know, could lead to it being a waste of time to pursue because something good could happen like a payment plan or a, um, you know, someone pays off their balance. Um, Or let's use the data to find, you know, maybe we're working in a tipping point neighborhood in a, in a targeted fashion. And we want to find a street where there are multiple vacant tax uh, delinquent properties, and maybe we can act on them all at the same time so that you can have a concentration of, um, you know, programmatic activity to have an impact. You know, maybe just doing one property is a drop in the bucket, but if you do three on a street, you can actually have impact and change um, perceptions of the neighborhood increase comps, improve the neighborhood um, market. Exactly. And that, I mean, that's our research, right? The research we've done, you know, like you're saying, seven, eight times we're, we're in now, we're, we're getting into epidemiological stuff for the impact on violence, right? But also on property values. We've proven over and over the, the effect on neighboring properties from, if you have a blighted structure in the neighborhood, all those neighboring property values have a negative effect, right? Like that, that blight lowers those property values. One of the things that I really want you to unpack is like what it takes, the relationship upkeep and like the the actual components of what it takes um, to to keep an asset like Neo can do alive and well. And, you know, the resources that you need, like financing, funding, like being recognized uh, when the data is used in the research world so that you can have your proof points to continue it, get funding, all of that stuff, like what what it takes to keep that beast alive. So I I think we need to um, sort of start out with the uh, various relationships and 
one of the things before we sort of get into the the developing neo can do i'm going to uh just just take a, a step back to uh, a couple of lifetimes ago uh picture it cleveland the early 2000s and um you know we were um uh we had in cleveland here we still do um have a very deep neighborhood-based network of community development corporations. And those community development corporations, as well as organizations like the Cleveland Housing Network, in the 90s and in the early 2000s, were basically building and renovating housing units. Um, And actually, most of the, the, the new construction was happening within the city of Cleveland. Um, not in the suburbs, but in the city of Cleveland. And this is sort of the, the environment that I, that I entered community development in here in Cleveland. And um, what made the uh, Center on Urban Poverty and Community Development, the Poverty Center, interested in um, bringing a, a property data component into its um, can-do or neo-can-do uh, domain uh, was this interest in helping community development organizations make data-driven decisions um, yes. around, you know, where to build new houses, where to renovate houses, um, because, um, frankly, the success of the community development um, infrastructure took up all the good vacant lots and all the houses that need to be needed to be renovated at the time. And, you know, there were new, basically the, the, the world of, of housing production in Cleveland, um, you know, we needed to squeeze more juice out of the orange and let's use data to do that. So um, that is, is, is why the leadership at the uh, uh, poverty center decided to, to do this uh, parcel data expansion um, to be more responsive to the community development needs, um, both through a data perspective and through a uh, uh, an emphasis in their uh, degree programs on uh, community development. So, you know that was that was one thing that was happening. And then I'm going to go back to uh, your, your your podcast with Sally Martin. Uh, she mentioned the Cleveland at the Crossroads report, which brought in Joe Schilling in the National Vacant Properties Campaign, which evolved to be the Center for Community Progress, uh, to do an assessment on vacant properties in Cleveland. You know, not from a perspective of vacant and blight, but it was really how can we take what's vacant, what's blighted, what's underutilized and turn them into assets. So there was this 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 genesis of this desire at the university to help community development. This National Vacant Properties Campaign Cleveland at the Crossroads report which then culminated and the report called for a unified data system as well as the organization called VAPAC. Uh, which is the Vacant and Abandoned Property Action Council. That document you guys put out, we have it up on our website. That is a robust set of recommendations. Specifically related to COVID, correct? 
specifically related to COVID, and that's available on our site. And that we want to drive people to learn more about VAPEC because what you guys pulled off in a short period of time is powerful. From the feds and your local congressmen to the state, to your county, to your local subunits and all the mayors, this is an action plan for, for getting resources to stem the tide on the other side of COVID. And it's a, it's a powerful little document that you guys pulled together. And so I'm going to circle back to your original question of what it takes to have a, a, a neo can do and having an organization like VAPAC, where you're bringing together leadership from the different city of Cleveland departments, the housing court, the different parts of Cuyahoga County, um, the, the, the funding community, the community development network, all those people around one table really beefs up the credibility when you're going to ask different organizations to pony up their data. And so really one of the first focuses of VAPAC was to help the people at the university, myself and, um, you know, the Claudia Colton and April Urban, who was not there at the time yet at the Center on Urban Poverty and Community Development, was to basically um, advocate for funding for NeoCanDo as well as data for NeoCanDo. So we could sit around the table and ask, hey, Department of Building and Housing in Cleveland, it would be great if NeoCanDo had condemnation data and code violation data. You know, hey, county treasurer, it would be great if we could have, you know, better tax delinquency information. And so by 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 bringing you know the the the, the original purpose of of VAPAC, it was actually uh, the vacant properties coordinating council when it when it first started and then was rebranded VAPAC uh, later on was to coordinate efforts to responding to vacant properties to turn them into opportunity under the original mission of the Cleveland at the Crossroads report. So, you know, you had all these people coordinating how vacant and distressed properties could become an asset and how we could start sharing data better between the various responses. And 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 this was pre-foreclosure crisis. This was really let's just kick the Cleveland community development um, network, you know, let's give it a push so that we can just keep doing better and, you know, stabilizing more neighborhoods and other things like that. And when the foreclosure crisis happened, Cleveland was able to respond to it because it already had the infrastructure of VAPAC, people sitting around the same table, checking their egos at the door and having frank conversations on the different issues related to the foreclosure crisis, as well as we had the data already in place. And actually, the the foreclosure crisis led us to creating some very, I wouldn't call them basic reports, but we, we did an analysis just using transfer data on sheriff's deeds and showed with one little data source how you can identify what's happening to properties post foreclosure and writing a paper. We basically, by taking the, the, the data we had at the time and disseminating it at 
meetings with the various community development corporations, you know, through maps and through tables and through charts, as well as writing reports on various aspects of the foreclosure crisis. That created almost a a trust with other organizations that were just not some, you know, fly-by-night organization that's going to take data and, and use it for bad or, or anything like that. So really, it's it's having data and doing something with that data that's positive for the community turns into getting more data. There's the saying that, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. You know, we did not have all the data sources and all the data sets and all the integrations on day one. We had some property characteristics and some sales information. And then we used that to show that we were proficient at you know, analyzing the crisis. And then that turned into more data and more analysis and more trust and more relationships. Um, but we were also had this organization, VAPAC, advocating for, um, you know, Neo Can Do to have the data and, and you know, VAPAC in identifying different problems with the foreclosure crisis and with the response to the foreclosure crisis, every single time they're issuing a white paper, there is some sort of data that's involved in that Absolutely. analysis. Mm-hmm. So... So, you know, it really was having these advocates in partner organizations around the table at VAPAC. Yeah. And and, and so now, you know, you've built this muscle memory of a regional data asset. And so those relationships are pretty well established now. And so the maintenance there in terms of relationship is pretty well set from my understanding. And now the data flows pretty well. Correct. Uh, yeah, it, it it does flow pretty well. You know, we're at the point where a lot of our county data, because we, you know, whether it be the advocacy through through VAPAC and the the relationships through VAPAC, or uh, the relationships and the the goodwill that the Cuyahoga Land Bank has had within county government, you know, a lot of those data sets we're getting now from the county are are automated, and you know, we've involved people at the level of county IT who are also, you know, becoming advocates because with the data coming to NeoCandu, they have fewer data requests that they need to respond to. And they don't have the time to do some of the analysis that, you know, we need done. Wearing my hat at the at the land bank, we use NST data to help uh, the county with its delinquent tax outreach efforts that I believe Sally also talked about on on her her podcast, so I, I don't want to go there. But you know, we've we've spent a lot of time training the treasurer staff to use the Neo Can Do assets to to help them do that because it's presented it in a more you know user friendly way than county data and other things like that. I'm not you know dismissing the you know the county's way of presenting data, but you know there's value added because by having data next to data glued together, you can make more data. You know there's there's not one true source of vacant lots out there. It's a combination of 
you know, what the county's building value is. If there's no building value, that probably means there's no building. If you don't see any new construction permits, you know there's not a building on there. If you know that it was demolished through permitting data, there's no building there. If it was in the administrative data set that comes from Cleveland's Department of Building and Housing, you know there's no building there. If the property was successfully demolished through the county's um demolition program, you know there's no building there. And then finally, if it was demolished by the Cuyahoga Land Bank, you know that there's no building there. So it, you know, I just rattled through, you know, five, six different sources that all need to be put together to determine whether or not you actually have something as simple as a vacant lot. Right, exactly. And so let's talk about the action end of the deal a little bit because the power of regional partnerships with VAPAC and the others that you guys have created to sustain NeoCanDo, right? Like the action end of the deal is let's talk about resources and money. Yes. A yes. Bit, right. So, so what it's done for what it's done for the county in terms of getting federal dollars, state dollars, county dollars to get this strategically targeted and um, put onto the street to create value in neighborhoods, neighborhood health neighborhood safety. How do people's, how do citizens and people's lives get impacted at the end of the day? It's dollars pumping into your community that because of this data system in place and the story and the narrative and the impact measurement that you can, you can make on a regularly updated basis, it helps you, you know, position yourself to show the need that your community has to bring in those resources. And there's a lot of specific times that those dollars came into the greater Cleveland area, Cuyahoga County, and throughout the state and throughout the country because of the story told within Cuyahoga County. Can you run through some of uh, some of the action end of the deal, how the DeWine tobacco dollars came down the pike for demolition, how hardest hit funds worked out, how the, the demolition fund at the county level, how the new fund for stabilization from the county, different things like that, like how you guys pulled that work off and um, um, how, how the data played a role in that? So first of all, I'm going to go back to something you said earlier about having the best land banking legislation here in the state of Ohio, you know, plugging our president, Gus Frangos, who, who, who wrote that to have the, the, you know, the, the three engines, the expedited tax foreclosure process, the, private government purpose nonprofit that's, you know, government, but not government, as well as the dedicated funding stream, you know, it was very, very complex legislation. And Jim and Gus did a fantastic job of of lobbying state legislature, you know, when we were creating county land banks here in Cleveland and Cuyahoga County, but or in the state of Ohio, I should say, that dedicated funding stream is so huge for land bank legislation. It's nowhere else like what you got. Can you just say what it is real quick? Um, it basically is penalty and interest on collected delinquent property tax. So, so there is penalty and interest generated if someone pays their taxes late. And a portion of that comes to be core funding for the Cuyahoga Land Bank, as well as other land, uh, county land banks in Ohio. Is it up to 5%? Is that right? Yes, it's up to 5%. So, so, you know, you had this advocacy of, you know, all this work that, that Gus did writing the legislation and all the advocacy of Gus and Jim. And 
But at the same point in time, uh, at the Poverty Center, I was still at the Poverty Center at the time, we wrote a report called Beyond REO. And we looked again at what happens to properties after they leave mortgage foreclosure, you know, going to investors, not paying taxes, all those bad things that happen when, you know, junk property just keeps getting flipped and trafficked and there's no beneficial outcome. And uh, Cleveland Councilman Tony Bracatelli was, you know, talking about the problem of REO dispositions to investors and speculators. And he holds up the report that I was a co-author on, you know, the Beyond REO, which actually got converted into a Federal Reserve Bank paper later on. And, um, you know, basically saying, here is a report from Case Western Reserve University in his official testimony to, you know, the Ohio legislature saying that, hey, in this report, there is data that shows that after foreclosure, bad things are happening. And we need a powerful organization like the Cuyahoga Land Bank to triage, to be there, to to stop this bad activity that keeps undermining our property values here. And, um, you know, that was very, I, I felt proud sitting in that legislative chamber, having my report held up and submitted as testimony to the passage of very, very important legislation. I know it was a small part of the efforts that happened um, to, to pass that legislation, but, you know, there was data saying we have a problem and we need an aggressive tool to deal with that aggressive problem. That's that's the role of data in passing key legislation that has teed up all these resources as well. So it not only is it, you know, getting the job done on a tactical day-to-day basis for you right now, but I mean, it, it also keyed up and teed up the entire organizational allowance through the law, right? right. So that that's that's a key point, man. So when there was mortgage settlement dollars and we had a capable organization like the various county land utilization corporations, the county land banks in Ohio, at the time, Attorney General DeWine said, these are the organizations that could administer this programmatic funding for demolition. We did a report, you and I and our teams, on using demolition to raise property values, bring down foreclosure rates. And we showed that, which then turned into hardest hit dollars being converted to having demolition as an eligible use. So the hardest hit dollars uh, for demolition were, were so successful. You know, we did another study with Dynamo Metrics on, uh, I believe it was the um, Ohio Housing Financing Agency that that hired Dynamo Metrics to use the same integrated data that we used originally to convince Treasury that hardest hit dollars should be used uh, for demolition purposes. And basically, it led to a, another round of more hardest hit dollars to be used for demolition purposes which then just turned into a whole nother analysis because, you know, there were all these new demolition dollars that needed to be uh, targeted. And, you know, we used data to basically find the worst of the worst properties 
to put into the tax foreclosure system to come out of the tax foreclosure system as as fast as possible so that this money could be spent within the federal timelines uh, for demolition and those those federal timelines I believe end in 2020 and we're just we just have some change left to spend those dollars but you know Ohio was very successful and Cuyahoga County at getting a lot of demolition dollars done within the allotted time because we could target those properties through, through tax foreclosure with our intergovernmental cooperation between the Cuyahoga Land Bank and the Cuyahoga County Treasurer's Office and Fiscal Office and Prosecutor's Office to basically prioritize these properties going through the system. They could come to us and get demolished. And then we know that uh, we did a 10-year land bank retrospect with Dynamo Metrics that talked about, you know, 10 years of Cuyahoga Land Bank activity using data that basically said, you know, with over 10,000 land bank acquisitions, over 7,000 land bank demolitions, we're actually now up to 8,600, almost 8,700 land bank demolitions, and almost 2,000 land bank renovations facilitated that we had a regional impact here at the Cuyahoga Land Bank of $1.43 billion. And we could not answer that question if we did not have the integrated data to tell us that. That's right. Um, It was really, it was great to see all that positive effect from like an objective scientific, you know, econometric application of, of your guys' historical data and the actions that you did identifying that, you know, all that rehabilitation, all that new construction, all that demolition of the blighted structures in these neighborhoods, putting properties back onto the tax rolls, doing economic development activity, all of the great things that the land bank brought to these to the to the greater Cuyahoga community, you know, it had such a positive impact. It was uh, it felt really good to do that work. It felt really important. And it tells that story. You know, it tells that story of well-targeted resources using data and having a positive impact on the community, right? So I want to I want to focus a little bit on on va- specifically like the VAPAC recommendations and this crisis we're in now and how you see how you see using the data system in the in the COVID crisis to get resources from the feds at the end of the day, right? Or the state or the county so that you can target those resources to the folks that need them. When I read the VAPEC document, I mean, we all know a big uh, eviction wave is coming. We're, we're seeing mom and pop landlords that are at risk of losing properties because folks can't pay their rent, all these financial issues. And so how does that translate back to data? Like, how do you measure that? How do you measure that? And how do you show the need? How do you show what's happening in your community on a, as near real time as possible to show that need, show what's happening in your community? And apply that into getting resources to stem that tide in your community. How are you going to skin that cat in Cuyahoga County as the neo can do maestro? Yeah. So it's just, this is going to remind me of something we did during the, the mortgage crisis. You know, we had a very robust county uh, foreclosure prevention office um, at the at the county treasurer's office that was coordinating all the responses of our various housing counseling 
um, agencies. And um, at CASE, in the Poverty Center, I think it was in 2007, 2008, we did a, a study called Pathways to Foreclosure, which was this whole longitudinal data set we built where we linked recorder data on mortgages to HUMDA data through probabilistic matching techniques because the HUMDA data is de-identified, so you don't really know the house. And we made these connections between the recorder data, which had the parcel number and the address, and the loan characteristics, which came from the HUMDA data, and then connected it to a foreclosure filing. And we provided this, we, we, we did a lot of updates to this information and provided it to the foreclosure prevention office to basically say, all right, these are the people who, who are owner occupants because the HUMDA data tells us that are in foreclosure. These are the people who have high cost mortgages, according to the HUMDA data, who are the next people who are likely to be foreclosed upon. And so, so because we were able to integrate the data and create these, these at-risk characteristic at the borrower level, it turned into a big outreach event where tens of thousands of letters were sent inviting people to come to counseling outreach um, meetings. And they were held in you know, regional rec centers, libraries, things like that. So you didn't have to drive downtown. You didn't have to drive from one side of town to the other. And we would basically target, you know, a few neighborhoods, a few suburbs at a time, sending out these mailers, inviting people to come to these outreach meetings. And, you know, it was a lot of, a lot of, um, uh, of time to, to put, put together those data sets, to come up with the, the outreach strategy, working with the foreclosure prevention office and sending out all those letters. But, you know, I, 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 I just sort of attended a, a couple, you know, I'm a data guy. I, you know, I don't, I don't get out much to, you know, play and, and interact with, with the, you know, the community and, and, you know, the people, but to see people who who were at risk of losing their homes coming to these meetings carrying documents and documents and grocery bags and and working with these counseling agencies um you know at these community events was like you know if 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 all this effort helps save that one family puts them into a better situation it's 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 all worth it we don't often get to see that, right? Like the fruit of the labor where the people actually get to stay in their home and keep their home. It's a big one. And, and so because Neo can do is collecting the foreclosure data still on a weekly basis, updating the tax delinquency information on a weekly basis is involved in, in all of the advocacy from VAPAC who put this document together you know, we already have all the people at the table. We have a lot of the data at the table. And if there's more data that become become available through these people being at the table, coordinating all of that, it can be then integrated with the rest of the data so that you can have this targeted outreach again. But, those were, but Mike, those were owners, and this time it's the renters. So what's the trick? Do you go into the courts so that you get this, if there's an eviction filing, so that you can uh, intercept that eviction filing 
and feed that into, um, you know, the triaging of like settlements between landlords and tenants when those things come up? Like, how do you, like, how, how would you serve that up so that it can be programmatically executed? Well, I think you're talking to the wrong person, April Urban at the Center on Urban Poverty and Community Development. There's a coincidence that her last name is also the uh, in the title of, of where she works. But, you know, she was involved in doing a study with Housing Court and looking at the eviction data because um, Cleveland recently, I believe it was last year, passed legislation to have people being evicted have representation at their eviction hearings. There's so much rapidly unfolding right now. Like what I'm really curious about is your role as this unfolds and in how you're deploying data out to the community and the different organizations that are going to need it as they position to show need and leverage resources so that you, you know we can tri- triage the COVID crisis in the short run, but also over the long term as this thing starts to really take root and take hold on the other side of a service-based recession, like how that plays out in terms of data need throughout a community with such a you know advanced data asset. And so the key thing, because we are still so early in the response to the COVID situation, is you know in Cleveland we have VAPAC who is talking and coordinating and bringing people together, we have the data infrastructure already. We have the VAPAC people who are advocates helping to seek out that new data source, that new research question, that new combination of how you look at foreclosure with eviction, with tax delinquency, and bringing all those pieces of information together. So the infrastructure is here already in Cleveland to to help respond to that. And, you know, it's just a question of everyone still being at the same table and trying to just respond This is what we're trying to do. I mean, we're in it right now. What is the national policy response to this? And I think what we have on our hands is a a laboratory that we can actually start to design a good national, state, and local level policy response on the other side of this crisis and during it. You guys are ahead of the curve in terms of your data assets. So how do you leverage that to get ahead of the curve with the COVID response so that all of the fallout from this unprecedented recession can get nipped in the bud. And we missed the mark during the Great Recession. The the resource, like how fast the resources moved out to communities was too slow. And so we had this really elongated recession that, you know, places were just starting to come out of. And I mean, we're talking almost 10 years later, right? 10 years later plus. How do we do it this time and get it right? And one of the things that helped Cleveland also be ahead of the curve on the foreclosure crisis, you know, and being the the canary in the coal mine was the efforts with VAPAC and Cleveland Neighborhood Progress and some of the work that Frank Ford did when he was at Neighborhood Progress around the land assembly team and the neighborhood stabilization team was to be not only involved in this conversation at a higher level with government officials and the nonprofit community and sort of the, the, you know, the high ups of the world, but we were also meeting with those working on the ground at community development corporations and within housing departments in, in, you know, in local government 
And we were seeing the actual effects of houses emptying out to foreclosure and going on neighborhood tours and having the the VAPAC conversation being grounded in the neighborhood stabilization team, land assembly team work of actually working on the ground and then tying the data and research to it. It was kind of like a, 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 a perfect triangle of, you know, being on the ground, being at the high level policy level, and then connecting those two with data. And that was something that was very powerful in the last crisis. Yeah, man. And, and so let's, let's, uh, that's what I'm hoping we can commit to on this, on this podcast. I'd love to have you back. Is like, let's figure out the correct data that we need to serve up so that there's a proper response to this crisis, right? And the fact that we have regular feeds of data. So identifying that way, you know, what is that KPI? What is that key performance uh, indicator that we can serve up to the feds, to the states, to whoever that they need so that they can properly move resources to triage what is what is going to unfold over the next one, you know, one month, but also one to three years as a result of things. So thanks, Mike. Um, hope to have you back real soon uh, as, as things start to hopefully become more clear. And I just I want everyone you. to say to stay safe and healthy and appreciate the the role for data absolutely absolutely go data go Um, data thanks for listening to this episode of ahead of the curve and special thanks to mike for joining us today in our next episode we're joined by jerry paffendorf ceo and co-founder of loveland technologies a nationwide property data and gis software company We'll discuss the historical, current, and future role of parcel-level data and the importance of parcel data software in the context of the COVID economy.